Today's show is brought to you by MParticle. It's the only consumer data platform built for omni-channel experiences. Did you know the average American owns four digital devices? When I use a product like Spotify or Airbnb, I expect it to know what I need. Those are just two of the world's most innovative brands that use MParticle to unify lots of customer data into a single source of truth. Then MParticle seamlessly delivers that data to any marketing or analytics platform without any additional work. Visit mparticle.com to learn how your business can improve customer experiences and accelerate growth. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as the top bidder on your sunglasses auction, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today, I am in New York City, and in the red chair is David Rosenblatt, the CEO of First Dibs, which is an online marketplace for furniture, jewelry, art, and antiques. David was previously the CEO of DoubleClick, the online advertising company bought by Google in 2007, which is a basis of most of their business at this point. And he serves on the boards of several important companies, including IAC and Twitter. David, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me. No problem. We've, been, we've known each other a long time, haven't we? We have. We have, back in DoubleClick days. And before that, where were you before that? Uh, I was a DoubleClick for a long time. For a long time, time. Yeah. 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 So what I'm going to start with is sort of your background, because I don't think you're, mm-hmm. you're in a completely different business than what you started. In. Well, sort of. It's a marketplace. Uh, to some degree. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it's different. It's different in the same time. So give everybody your background a little bit, your, where you came from. Uh, how far back? Well, professional just far background, back. Professional. Like, how did yeah. you get into the internet? Space? Yeah. So I did a bunch of different stuff. I majored in Chinese language and literature in college. Okay, and, that's uh, totally not relatable. To exactly. This, but did okay. a, a tour of duty in Asia. Mm-hmm. Came back, uh, did a stint on Wall Street. Didn't like that. Mm-hmm. My honorable discharge from investment banking was to go to Stanford Business School. Mm-hmm. Why didn't was, you like investment banking? Um, you know, I didn't like being an agency as a, an agent, rather, as opposed to being a principal in, in mm-hmm. any business. And right. number one and number two, I didn't I didn't want to be in a quantitatively oriented job. I wanted to be in a job where I was making something and mm-hmm. could actually impact an industry. Mm-hmm. Where did you uh, grow up? Washington, D.C. D.C. Yeah, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that these days. <laughs> it's you true. You go to the same yeah. school as my kids? Is that, or you went, you, you grew up in the area? Uh, you, which school is that? The George Shenday School, for some reason? Uh, I went to a, a, a school in the same, same kind of bracket, genre. Same genre. The genre, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, but you went into investment because that's what people did, or uh, you know, no, because I literally in college and unlike many other people in tech, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I took a single class with a number in it the mm-hmm. whole time I was in it. I don't think I read the business section until I was twenty five, mm-hmm. and to me, business meant finance, right? And so that's when, what I, everybody when did. I got to got to the point where I felt like I needed a real job, a real job was something in, in so finance. no computer background. That's what I'm getting. So at. no technology background. Were you not a secret geek in high school? Or no, like no, that? unfortunately Nothing. not. I wish right. <laughs> I wish I had been, but yeah. uh, but I'm not. And so I ended up going to Stanford Business School from 1995 to 1997. Mm -hmm. That coincided with the birth of the internet as a commercial medium. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I still remember, we used to have these these sessions called Meet the Companies, MTCs. Mm -hmm. And the first Meet the Company that I went to was with two grad students who had started a business. 
uh, called Yahoo, mm-hmm. and the room was about a third so this filled. This is Jerry and Dave. Mm-hmm. It was about a third filled, and they kind of walked through the business. And I remember all of us walking out thinking, yeah, sort of an interesting idea, this but it doesn't seem like a real business to what us. Year was this? This is 19, would have been 1995, the okay, fall of 1995. Yeah, right. Um, and anyway, so uh, they didn't go. Pu- they went public not soon, a- soon after, right? Relatively, uh, I don't remember exactly, yeah, but after. you know, they were still grad students at Stanford yeah. at, at that point. Anyway, to cut a much longer story sh- and uninteresting story short, the summer between my two years, mm-hmm. I I wanted to get an attack. I didn't know how to do it. And so I wrote letters to 20 VCs, and I said, I'll work for free. Put me into any company in the country. Mm-hmm. Only one person wrote back. That was Alan Patrikoff, who's oh, sort of wow. the dean of the yep. VC in community New York, in, in New, New York. York. And he put me into a New York company, which that company ended up not being the one that I stayed with. But I, I loved which the experience. It, it was, was called it? Omnipoint. Oh. It was the first GSM licensee on the East Coast. Okay. But I loved the experience. And, and probably more importantly, I met the woman who would later become my wife that right. summer. That's so good. when I graduated Stanford, on that basis, I moved back so to New York. So you left Stanford where everybody stayed in tech to come back to New York. Yeah, only because of a woman. Yeah, okay. All yeah. right, okay. But you but you moved to New York, which was not the same. But I moved tech, to New York. Because right then, at that time you were there, it was Jerry, Larry, and Sergey. They were all there at I mean, Stanford. It was, it was, it was everything. Yeah, excited I mean, home was there. Yeah, they exactly. Were all, you know, so excited, in the end, excited. I basically decided to prioritize mm-hmm. my my uh, relationship with, over my okay. career. Over billions. And uh, I um, ended up as I as I sort of came to, back to New York, and I met the very few, the very small number of, of digital startups that mm-hmm. people felt were promising. I ended up uh, connecting with Kevin O'Connor, who had mm-hmm. recently founded DoubleClick, and he brought me on as one of the first product managers. And, um, and you know, why I, why did you like that? Did you just met him? Where did you meet him? Uh, oh God, how did I, I met him through a mutual friend? Actually, the first weekend I was back, I went to a friend's bachelor party or mm-hmm. uh, engagement party or something like that, mm-hmm. and I met a well, guy. There's a difference between the two. Yeah, no, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Although for my purposes, there yeah. there, there wasn't. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, you know, I, okay. I met him, and he happened strippers to be working. Strippers or canapes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't remember if there are any strippers. Well, there. then, my night, memory party. of that night is fogged over. Uh, and so he happened to work at DoubleClick. He said, look, I think you should meet our founder. I mm-hmm. did. He offered me a, a product manager job. Mm-hmm. And I took it and um, ended up spending you know, 11 years there and then another year at Google right. after we sold the company. What, what attracted you to it? it explain what DoubleClick did. Because it's a, it was a really seminal company in the online advertising space and became sort of the backbone of uh, one of the backbones of Google's business. Yeah, DoubleClick invented the, the display one. advertising mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. It started started out life as an ad network. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hired to unbundle the technology that drove the network and sell it to publishers who competed with the, the DoubleClick ad network, mm-hmm. like the Wall Street Journal and others. Mm-hmm. And that business ended up um, really beca- you know, surviving the ad network business, which we shut down and sold mm-hmm. and became the core of the company. We, like a lot of digital companies, you know, sort of tracked the, um, you know, the kind of equity market, public equity market mm-hmm. uh, for digital companies. So we went public in 98. We had a $15 billion market cap by mm-hmm. the year 2000. And then we hit the wall along with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Unlike most other companies, we were fortunate in the spring of 2000 to have raised uh, about a billion dollars. Right. So we had the capital to remain solvent when others went bankrupt mm-hmm. from 
from 2001, so I was promoted in 2001 to be the number two person. Mm -hmm. Between 2001 and 2004, we both survived the dot-com meltdown and also attempted to diversify away from our core business, which was Mm -hmm. advertising, into things like, um, you know, database technologies and uh, data itself. Because everyone was looking for something Everyone was looking for something for a way out. right. What happened in 2004 is the equity market for internet stocks came back. We, however, did not come back with it because Mm -hmm. by that point we had diversified away from being what everyone thought we were, which was Mm -hmm. an internet advertising company. Mm -hmm. And the board ended up deciding to sell the company through an auction. We ended up being acquired by Hellman and Friedman, which is a you know mm-hmm. San Francisco-based private equity firm. Sure. Um, they asked me to to stay on as CEO, and our strategy from that point on was basically a kind of back to the future approach, where we reversed our way out of the diversification that we had followed for the Although previous Although data three would years. later be very important, which is interesting. Well, data is sort of always important, yeah. but there are different ways to be a data company. Sure. So and, talk about the. I want to talk about the origins of that. The reason I want to have you is to talk about it, and then talk about first dibs, mm-hmm. but the origin of advertising. People don't really understand how sort of piecemeal it was in moving forward. Like everyone thinks, ah, oh, Google now, Facebook now. But there really was a really questionable period of time of how it was going to monetize correctly. Well, I remember we had a um, – actually, it's funny. There was a – after the dot-com meltdown, a bunch of leaders in the industry, both in the among ad technology vendors like us and also publishers like MSN – created this group of people called, which they called the Loya Jirga. The Loya Jirga was like a form of governance in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, which okay. at the time obviously was, you know, <laughs> felt sort of appropriate. Right. right. Um, and this Loya Jirga then proceeded to create a lot of the infrastructure, which allowed the industry mature to mature to a point where mm-hmm. it really could go mainstream. So mm-hmm. we, I think the uh, IAB, the Internet Advertising Bureau, came out of that. A lot of the kind of standards around ad creative and, and so on came out Explain for people who don't understand what the problem was there was just no there's no standards there was no real the ads were not useful or helpful or what was the big issues what were the big issues you were facing then uh, I think the big issues were it was again in the wake of the dot-com meltdown things mm-hmm. were different before that you know the industry was not standardized so it was incredibly expensive to operate both mm-hmm. as a seller and as a buyer mm-hmm. there was no standard definition of what an ad unit was there was mm-hmm. no standard way to price it there was no standard way to evaluate the efficacy of the advertising and in right. that kind of an environment you know big companies like Procter & Gamble, on Who whom the, the future of the industry depends, aren't going to buy at scale. Right, right. right. And so they dabbled. They dabbled. They, they dabbled. And so in retrospect, what happened is in that sort of fallow period from 01 to 04, a lot of the infrastructure that ended up forming the basis for the industry was, was created. Mm-hmm. The ultimate event, though, which I think actually um, allowed the display business to, to you know, become as big as it is today, was the creation of the DoubleClick Ad Exchange mm-hmm. and the conversion of the display advertising business from a sort of old-fashioned three-martini lunch, right, yeah. you know, negotiated ad by universe, right. to one in which ad inventory was monetized through a marketplace right. of tremendous scale. Right. And that was what we created and what became the basis of the double-click. It was the Google of Google. advertising. Yeah, it was the now, Google of advertising. I don't I mean, know, because Google was, a, had bought Overture and was doing that in search. Uh, Yahoo bought Overture. Yahoo bought yeah, Overture. Yeah, to compete with Google. Yes, compete exactly. with Google. I'm sorry. And Google had bought – what was the one it bought? Oh, I'm Blanking. Um, applied know. semantics, yeah, one which, of them. But, which was, became but the basis they, for AdSense. But what was interesting is that they did the same thing. They were in the same genre in the in their money making, the kind of idea of, of 
making it automated, I guess that's what you're saying. Making Advertising. Making it automated and right. allowing advertisers to actually what, – what the difference was in the in – the, what ad exchanges allow – is for the advertiser to buy the underlying audience. So publishers, at the end of the day, are simply a proxy for underlying Mm -hmm. audience. And so our theory in developing and launching the ad exchange was, well, if you could somehow separate that underlying audience from the publisher Mm -hmm. and allow advertisers to buy that audience directly, then it becomes a much more efficient process, at least in an economic sense. Right, right. And that's what happened. And today it's, you know, I don't know exactly, but I think it's GMV is somewhere in the, you know, $20, $30 billion annual Right. And where did you get that? insight what was the insight from so it was really motivated by fear actually Mm -hmm. (laughs) we understood that google was um aiming to enter our business and in fact Mm -hmm. you know based on what we knew they were they had a lot of resources behind it Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we got behind closed doors and we came up with a what we called project centillion centillion according to the pm that you know invented this is the only number that's bigger than a google oh all right okay and Ah. the idea was (laughs) if you could create an ad exchange then all the stuff that google was building mattered a lot less Mm -hmm. than you know the scale and the reach that we would right. be able to deliver as an right. alternative. Right. And you still had relationships with publishers and Yeah, we, we worked with every major brand right. and, and publisher, even including AOL, scared, Viacom, and so on. Yeah, we were still scared of Google at that time. Yeah, they were course. still nervous yeah, about yeah. what it was doing, even though Google had just started only a few years before, which was... Well, even... I don't remember the numbers. Even by then, they were, they were you know... Absolutely. They were... It was pretty clear they were the force to absolutely, with. And, Facebook and there was no Facebook, exist. so they no were the Facebook, only right. large-cap game in town right. other than Yahoo, which, you know, even then... Uh, you could start to see. You could see the beginnings of the decline. It took forever for that yeah. to die, didn't it? Right. It did. <laughs> it's still dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's still slowly dying. It's like watching someone fall down the stairs in slow motion in a lot of ways. But you sold it to Google. I'm going to fast forward to first dibs how you got there. But you sold it to Google. What was the thinking behind it? Was that they needed you because? Well, the basic idea behind the merger was, you know, what we offered was an ad platform, mm-hmm. which publishers would use to manage their own advertising. Mm-hmm. On the basis of the scale of that ad platform, by the time we sold the company, I think we were delivering somewhere between, you know, three to four billion ads a day. The idea was we would create this marketplace to help publishers monetize unsold inventory, mm-hmm. right? They Online. were using our technology to help monetize the sold inventory right. that they were selling. And then they were, you know, they didn't have a great solution for unsold inventory. That that was the problem that the ad marketplace, mm-hmm. the ad exchanges pointed at. And so the simple idea was let's marry our uh, publisher installed base with their monetization machine mm-hmm. and basically take the double click strategy as it existed then, but power it with all of the demand that Google could that bring from bring advertisers they already yeah, work yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, how did you feel about that? I mean, did you, did you think that you could have been by yourselves or there's always a moment where, you, you know, should... the analogy I use with our board at the time is mm-hmm. I felt, so the courtesy of the, of having reversed that diversification and the yeah. fo- newfound focus that we had as a company, mm-hmm. we were doing extremely well. Right. And um, so the analogy I, I used at the time, at I yeah, mean, I felt like, look, I felt like we were on the deck of the Titanic, you mm-hmm. know, pre-crash, mm-hmm. you know, clinking champagne glasses. We had this huge iceberg in front of us called right. Google and either we were going to hit it, in mm-hmm. which case the party was over, literally, or we could bypass it, in which case life would be better than if we, you know, than, yeah. uh, than obviously than if we had remained independent. And it wasn't necessarily good at everything, but this was an area that you thought that they would excel at, that they were aiming. Yeah. Why did they yeah. need to buy you at all, did you think? 
Well, first of all, I think, you know, what they're not Google, buying Spotify right now, or maybe they are. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, look, what Google, at the time, Google was functionally organized. So mm-hmm. they had very few people that were focused on this business and mm-hmm. that we felt really understood it. And like a lot of companies, you know, they thought about this new business in terms of the old business, even down, meaning search, mm-hmm. even down to the terminology they used. And, mm-hmm. and none of that stuff applied or was right. Secondly, they were threatened by big – I mean, they were threatened – big publishers were threatened by Google. Right. And yet at the same time, Google needed those publishers for inventory to, to sell because mm-hmm. they didn't have at the time a whole lot of display inventory themselves. So those were the two things that we could deliver, right? We could – a great product. Uh, it was a technology-driven company. We had something like 800 engineers. You know, We were by far the market leader and mm-hmm. we had the best relationships with the best publishers. Right. Remember how it was greeted at the time? Microsoft went crazy. Yeah. Right. That's Crazy. true. Crazy. Well, Microsoft calls. and Yahoo both bid for us. So right. it ended up, we ended up in a bidding war between those three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google obviously won. You know, Microsoft under Bomber at the time uh, was not surprisingly hyper competitive and mm-hmm. reacted in the way that, you know, hyper competitive companies do, which mm-hmm. is they bought, you know, what they thought was the alternative to, to DoubleClick, right. which is a company called Aquanive, Aquanive. for twice the price in yep. absolute terms. They paid $6 billion. That's right. Only to then realize they bought the wrong company and mm-hmm. ended, that up, sounds like ended up writing down, I think, acquisition f- strategy. Yeah, and look, I time. think they wrote, wrote down the full $6 billion they did. Dollars, they did uh, later. purchase price. And then what did Yahoo buy? Yahoo worked, went. Uh, right media right media. to develop the an ad exchange and they right. never invested in it and then no. it too died a yeah. slow and painful death yeah so everyone was yeah. grabbing for one of one of those but you guys face a lot of uh regulatory pushback. we did so we we got to a deal with google in april of uh of 07 and it mm-hmm. took us a year to get clearance in both europe mm-hmm. and the u.s in the u.s we got clearance on december 23rd mm-hmm. of 07 uh because in its bravery, the FTC, you know, picked, I guess, a time when they thought yeah. people were going to be on vacation yeah. Uh, yeah. to approve it. We got yeah. approval in Europe a couple of months later and yeah. closed in. You wouldn't uh, have gotten it today, I'll tell you that. Uh, we probably wouldn't have. Never yeah. today. So you didn't stay there for long, you right? You didn't. I you stayed just... there for one year, yeah. Right. And, um, you know, look, my goal in that year was to, was to do the best I could to help see the integration through and make sure that our best people were taken care Why of. Why not stay at the Borg? They would have liked to keep you, I'm guessing. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, yeah. for one thing, I lived in the wrong city and mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't interested in moving out to Mountain View. And Google is an absolutely incredible company. But, mm-hmm. you know, the truth is I was also used to, to running the show and um, I wouldn't have, obviously, a Who Google. Who would you have worked for, Susan? Well, or? I did work in that year. I worked for uh, two people, actually. Mm-hmm. I worked for Jonathan Rosenberg, who oh, ran product at the yes. time, and Omid Kordestani, who mm-hmm. ran sales. Mm-hmm. Again, both of whom I like a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, they didn't, because at the time Google didn't have, uh, wasn't organized around business units, mm-hmm. there was no natural role for me. And I lived, again, in the wrong city. Right. And then you stayed And here. I also wanted to, you know, I enjoyed the All process. All right. So now we're going to get to companies. how you got here. I'm sorry to go into that because it's so interesting. Oh. Because you were there at the dawn of this very important business for Google and sort of runs things. When we get back, we're going to talk more with David Rosenblatt. He is the CEO. And are you the founder of First Dibs? No, no not. you're not. But yeah. uh, it's a it's an auction company. You're going to explain it in a second. I'll explain it. All right, great. It's a marketplace. Okay, marketplace. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. So Gartner says that customer data platforms are the most buzzed about marketing technology topics in 2017. What is a customer data platform and why the sudden interest? Customer data platforms are about capturing user behaviors across any screen or system 
creating a unified view of that customer and then making it easy to connect that data to various types of marketing and analytics tools in real time, nonetheless. And so they're getting a lot of attention now because people are engaging with brands across lots of different screens and devices. And this shift has created a real challenge as brands try to map the customer journey and deliver these consistent and personalized experiences across all these different touch points. So when you think about it, what the CDP represents is CRM 2.0, not to overdo all mm -hmm. the acronyms. Mm -hmm. In the offline world, you could easily associate customer behavior to a known identity. There's been companies around for dozens of years who will capture your data at the point of sale and then right. map it to your name and address and so on and so forth. But in web, most of the data that was observable or, or capturable was anonymous mm -hmm. and it was perishable because people delete their cookies all the time. Thank you, Mike Katz of MParticle. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Kara, first of all, I just want to say hello. It's nice to hello. be in the same room with you. It's Thank very you. exciting. Kara, mm -hmm. this Thursday in New York City, I'll be talking to Joe Hagen. Mm -hmm. Wrote Sticky Fingers. It's a new biography of oh. Rolling Stones' Jan Wenner. Like that title, but okay. Jan Wenner doesn't like anything about the book. <laughs> he, he pitched the book to Joe and then has disowned him. So it's very controversial oh. and much wow. more exciting to talk about. Yeah. And then also, what else? Oh, man, we have so much good content so over the Recode Media feed. We, um, we just talked to Jimmy Kimmel recently. We also talked to Michael Barbaro, who's the host of the New York Times' fantastically successful daily podcast. Big, big, huge numbers. Huge numbers. Huge 100 numbers. million downloads, and he came Explain to talk to us. Explain what that is. They, tell, they, have a, they have the reporters come in. And it is that. a thing that I thought would never work, which is the New York Times reporters talking about their stuff every day. It turns mm -hmm. out it's fantastically successful, as it should be. It's great. Yeah, it's well-produced. It's really interesting, yeah. actually. You don't have to read the paper, but I do anyway. No, it, it adds to the paper. It does. It makes it you really the paper more. Yes, I love it. Fantastic. This has been an ad for the New York Times. This has been an ad for the New York Times. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're here with David Rosenblatt, who is the CEO of First Dibs, and he's going to explain that. So you left Google. You sold DoubleClick for $3 billion, Is that right? That's a good sale. And they made it into an even bigger mm -hmm. business. And you got out of the online advertising business. What? That's why? Right. What happened? Uh, well, I, I've stayed in it, it for a dozen sort years. Of yeah. indirectly through mm -hmm. uh, boards and right. you know an angel portfolio, but mm -hmm. basically as an operator. Uh, listen, I mean, I had done it for a long time, over a decade, and we had created a double click the the display advertising industry, and mm -hmm. uh, I was ready to learn new things. That's mm -hmm. what attracted me to the internet in the first place. Right, and so you, but you were probably offered lots of ad jobs, right? You were, and it was still they were still like evolving, and Facebook had just started. Right? Did you ever think of going there, or did you? I'm sure you had an offer. From yeah, I didn't. I mean, again, you know, the other issue is is location. So right. I live in New York. I I sort of flirted for a short time with the possibility of moving out to the valley decided that Why I love because was, I love I love living in New York. Yeah, I walk right. out onto the street and I feel right. a rush of energy that right. I don't feel anywhere else. And in the world. I guess the only business would be AOL, right? Here it was here at that uh, time. At the time, AOL, I'm sure there are others that aren't Four coming Square. To yeah, Foursquare yeah. was around. There was a couple. But wh what made you go into this? How did you get to First Dibs? And explain it. Explain what it is for first. For yeah, so first, first Dibs is the world's largest marketplace for luxury design. Okay. So the simplest way to think about it is, you know, it's eBay meets Sotheby's. All right. There are, are differences oh, nice. in terms of the business model and so right. on, but it's kind of easy way to conceptualize it. Uh, so how did I get to First Dibs? In the wake of leaving Google, uh, I joined a bunch of boards. 
One of them was Twitter. Mm-hmm. One of Twitter's investors was and is uh, Benchmark. Mm-hmm. And um, I've heard of them. Yeah, and I've been involved in something <laughs> recently. I'm trying to think. Uber, maybe. And so, that. two years after I left Google, I uh, was talking to Benchmark, and they said, "Hey, you know, we're thinking about investing in this company called First Dibs, and we're likely going to need someone to run it. Would you be interested?" Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of First Dibs, so right. after they explained to me what it was, um, I called an interior designer who I'd done some work with and and asked him, you know, hey, Russell, have you you heard of this company, First Dibs? And he said, have I heard of it? You know, 50% of your apartment was sourced on First Dibs. And so that was the first time the the light bulb went off. And Mm -hmm. I spent some more time with the founder and with – uh, with you know Matt uh, Kohler and Bill Gurley from Benchmark, mm-hmm. and um, I was really even though it was you know it was a very small company compared to what I'd run before, and it basically wasn't growing. I was really intrigued by the concept and mm-hmm. by its potential. And so I joined. And talk about sourcing. What is it to explain? Because it's not you don't think luxury goods is something that's either scalable. Speaking of things that are done in an old way, you know, you go to those design places, like there's one in San Francisco, Design Center. People pick things out. They sit on settees. They go through things. They wander around. I mean, it's, it was done in a very old style way yeah, yeah. Like, of like, antique stores. Yeah, you know? like a lot of industries. Yeah. Yeah. But really, that's harder. It's a harder one to do. So explain what, how Listen, you Listen, I mean, it. you know. It's not one you would think of for digitization. I think I think I, it's true that most people yeah. wouldn't think of it that way. Right. On the other hand, most people didn't think that fashion would be amenable to mm-hmm. digital disruption either. Right. I mean, these are things you want to try on, right? And how can mm-hmm. you buy something without trying it on and looking at yourself in the mirror and so on? Uh, but actually, it turns out that you know the luxury uh, collectibles business, for lack of a better word, is a $300 billion industry. Mm-hmm. It's a global industry. Right. It's mostly a one-of-a-kind business, mm-hmm. meaning – you know, that there are very few copies of what people buy. And mm-hmm. so if it's not, the likelihood is that the buyer is not going to be in the same city as mm-hmm. the seller, which means there's a lot of value to Yeah, so people remember because you go on grand tours of Europe to get their collection. Yeah, exactly. But, but And so if that grand tour of Europe can be brought to your doorstep, then, mm-hmm. you know, and, and now you can do that shopping trip at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Um, why wouldn't you? And in fact, as we look back at the origin of First Dibs, mm-hmm. the story is um, our founder was in Paris, and there's a neighborhood in Paris called the Paris Flea Market, which mm-hmm. hosts a lot of these antique stores, I've and to which interior designers used to go all the time. There's a Woody Allen movie that was set there, Rhapsody in Blue, and uh, and so on. It sort of occupied a pretty important sure. place in the kind And there's of places in New York like that. Yeah, 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 in every city, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened is our founder, you know, started the business by walking around the Paris flea market, taking pictures of items and putting them on a website. And then shortly after he launched the website, 9-11 took place. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, high-end interior designers who used to or previously had flown to Paris with their clients to look at product. Now, not only could they – were they not able to do that, but they didn't have to anymore because, voila, they had this website that, Mm -hmm. that allowed them to see the same product. He then quickly moved to New York, and he ran that business organically over the following 10 years Mm -hmm. by adding on the supply side the best dealers in the country. It was all you are mostly U.S. Mm-hmm. of high-end uh, vintage so sort of and antique Etsy furniture. Etsy does that. I'm trying to compare. Yeah, I mean, one way to think about it is you know Etsy with three zeros at right. the end of its AOV, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Uh, and so he added, uh, you know, he added 
you know, the best dealers of, again, luxury, vintage and antique furniture, and then expanded into jewelry and art, mm-hmm. uh, mostly U.S. And that was the business that Benchmark invested in. It was the first outside capital in the company mm-hmm. at the end of 11. And it was in conjunction with that financing that I joined the company. So you were attracted to what the idea that this, that anything can be digitized is the concept, right? Listen, that- my basic belief is everyone is going to do everything over the internet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why would that the not? Amaz- why would that not? Amazonization. Yeah. Amazon. Well, I don't, that word I don't like because Amazon right. stands for We're a certain way of doing business. Yeah, yeah. That's a little different than, than our approach. But, you know, the bottom line is, you know, this industry too will become digital. It mm-hmm. didn't have that uh, disruptor yet. And I felt like we had the best shot to be the vehicle for for that kind of it, Explain the business model. You, you, I'm trying to think like how. So there's other things. You get a, a fee for finder's fee or what's the... What's so the business model has shifted. Right. Um, in fact, you know, I think maybe with one or two other exceptions, we're the only marketplace that I know of that has successfully made the transition from being an advertising-based business to an e-commerce business. Okay. So what do I mean? For the first, you know, 11, 12 years of the, of the business, mm-hmm. um, the way it worked is pretty simple. Sellers, all of whom were professional sellers, so dealers or galleries, we don't source from individuals, would pay essentially a fixed monthly fee in exchange for the right to advertise items on the site. Sure. However, all contact between buyer and seller up to and including the order itself then happened off the platform. So they would it was you would just be a finder essentially or a uh, lead generator. And, you know, I really sort of an ad repository, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess another way. So, you if know, you were a seller in Paris, you just put your stuff on the site and then try to sell it off. Of yeah, it. and conversely, if you're an interior designer in New mm-hmm. York, I guess I guess what you're saying is you'd sort of the site would would help you with discovery, right? Yeah. But nothing else, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, we, you know, the first year or so was spent kind of building the team and improving the infra- the basic technology infrastructure of the mm-hmm. company. At the end of that year, we relaunched the website. And Mm -hmm. as part of that relaunch, we tested the idea of Mm e-commerce. So we put a button on the site alongside the seller's contact information that allowed people to buy. And, you know, very quickly, even though this contact information was right there, we, you know, we were getting about really from day one, about 20-ish orders a day Mm -hmm. at an average order value of about $2,000. And so we said, hey, you know, there's something here. And actually, people are willing, at least some people are willing to buy this -hmm. stuff online. And then as we spent more time thinking about it, what we concluded is an e-commerce model actually would allow us to bring major, major benefits to both sellers and buyers, things that simply weren't possible in kind of the old way. Mm -hmm. And so our focus, primary focus over the last four years has been that, has been to transactionalize Mm -hmm. the, the marketplace. And it has been fascinating in part because, again, I don't think anyone else has ever done this successfully. Mm -hmm. And making that change is a hell of a lot harder than it looks. Right. So explain why does that work from from in these items, these 2000, you know, know, if you're selling, say, a settee or a a chair, for example, is it the one of a kind part of it? I mean, because Etsy works very well, I think. You know, Amazon works well, obviously. But what is it about the things that it's that is just easier, or what the transit that you give every part of it? Yeah. Well, so first of all, this is a market which is inherently inefficient, right? Mm -hmm. It's a mostly one of a kind market. Um, and it's hard to do discovery. It's hard to find stuff, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, again, you know, 
we have the best dealers in Vienna and we have the best dealers in Stockholm and and we seek them out, right? Right. And often they actually seek us out because we do have a very strong network effect, which means we've aggregated the best buyers in the world. If you want to be in front of those best buyers, it's a magical opportunity if you otherwise are restricted to being a dealer in Malmo, Mm -hmm. Sweden, and, you know, are kind of would have to limit yourself to people who made the trek out there. Mm -hmm. So from the seller's point of view, what we're able to do again is introduce them to a global audience of the best buyers, both consumers and also interior designers. So how do you do that side? Because then you have the other side, which has to be just as So robust. on the demand side, we have two types of buyers. We have interior designers mm-hmm. who are to this world what agencies are to the sure. media world. And then we have you know consumers, which in this business are called collectors. It's a right. fancy, right. fancy industry, so they get a I fancy name. I think rich name. ladies immediately. But that, that, not all ladies, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, they're, okay. They, they're they skew higher net worth. That yeah, is true. Uh, and so, you know, what we're able to do for them, again, in addition to solving the discovery problem, is we're able to create a buyer assurance policy, which mm-hmm. in this market is really important because they're spending. You know, it's real. It's, you know well, it's... we guarantee the authenticity of all pieces that are sold through the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something that. And do you look at, you know, you don't look at them. How do you guarantee the authenticity? Because I'm thinking of the real, real, which does. You send it in and they yeah. make sure it's a bill blast. So we don't do that. We, we we do it in a couple of ways. One and most important is we vet our dealers and galleries. So only mm-hmm. the best can sell on first dibs and we only accept a minority of those who apply to be mm-hmm. able to sell. Secondly, um, you know, we're able to um, – we, we vet at the item level for certain types of orders. So we average now about 10 orders a day above $10,000 per mm-hmm. order. So each of those we take a look at individually on top of it. And the reason why we're so careful about it is we, First Dibs, accept that risk. Mm-hmm. So we provide an ironclad buyer insurance policy. And that's part How of – How do you vet someone? How do you know? Well, again, we vet at the dealer level, How? number one. Uh, we they have to have references. We look at samples of their product. We look at you know we do background mm-hmm. checks, all, all that kind of stuff. But it, what, another interesting dimension of of um, a marketplace with very strong network effects is once they join the marketplace, because we've aggregated so much qualified demand. Just maintaining, you know, uh, their participation in the marketplace is itself the biggest incentive to play by the rules. Because mm-hmm. if they don't, obviously they get kicked out. Sure. And because so many people now rely on first dibs mm-hmm. as sort of a, a sole source way to to buy stuff, they they have to. And be then there. you split it up by search. Photo, a lot of photos and there's and there are a lot of photos. Yeah. 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 But so you know, how do we make the experience right. better? Number one is by aggregating product. Mm-hmm. Number two is by this buyer assurance. Number three is we take advantage of our scale to negotiate negotiate preferential rates mm-hmm. with uh, shipping carriers. So we get things delivered you know, at faster speeds, at lower prices, mm-hmm. and with more transparency around reporting mm-hmm. than any dealer or individual consumer or designer so now, could get on their own. So now you're in furniture, jewelry? We're in furniture, uh, fine jewelry, mm-hmm. art, and a little tiny bit in vintage fashion, Vision, so which is real, mostly real. expensive right, handbags. It's not the focus of the company, though. Right, because too hard? It's just not our, our core customer, again, is, is, not is, doing is, that. Is, is not doing that. And, you know, right. I'm not sure. We have great customers, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of other people in that business. Right. Uh, whereas in the rest of our businesses, you know, we're, we're able to really. So who's your biggest competitor then? What would be the competitor to this? So we have a bunch of different types of competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in some senses, the auction houses are marketplaces mm-hmm. themselves. 
they've invested very little in digital, and mm-hmm. so they're not really a, a head-to-head player, but they're in this market. Uh, number two is some of the large-cap internet companies have made forays into this business. eBay, yes, eBay launched something called the eBay Collective, which was a yeah. you know direct competitor of ours. It has no traction. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a whole bunch of smaller companies mm-hmm. who you know I like to call the uh, the anti-first dibs, meaning mm-hmm. whatever we do, they tend to do the opposite. So they rely on the old advertising and listings model. Uh, but again, the largest of those is probably I don't know five-ish percent, um, at least you know as it stands today. Uh, and then design within reach and, you know, the, the the big box retailers are other competitors of ours. Right. But again, they have a different business model. They're retailers. They're, they're not. Own. And they're they not, do sell. And they do designers. sell their own stuff, but they're not marketplaces. So they have right. much lower well, they're reach. Traditional retailers. Yeah, they're much exactly. more traditional. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about how do you compete in this world with, in an Amazon type of world? Because here's mm-hmm. something you could see Amazon getting into very easily. Um, and they certainly are moving in a fascinating direction. We're here with David Rosenblatt, who is CEO of first dibs. This show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology in everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you count on without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now the company that changed everything with the smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. This show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, more than 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. One more time to try it for the low, low price of free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. Hi, it's me, and I'm not a bot. You are a bot. I'm real. Else. I'm not a lizard person. You know, I question that on a daily basis. Every Friday, we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, what did we talk about this week? I'm going to turn it over to Recode's politics editor, Tony Rom. Is that? Are you a politics mm-hmm. editor? Politics yeah, reporter? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, why not? Basically. We do it all. What did we talk about <laughs> this week? guru. <laughs> well, other than talking about lizard people, we talked about uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election and how Facebook, Google, and Twitter are set to testify about it on Capitol Hill uh, on November 1st. Right. And that's going to be what? A watershed? What? Give, give uh, it's, big... it's either going to be really boring or kind of a mess for these companies. Either way, they don't want to be there. So no. it's going to be a Tech companies have a history of it. Like Jerry Yang on that China 
recommend you don't remember that, but I do. It was not good. It did not turn out well. Most companies that go to Capitol Hill that are tech companies don't do well. Bill yeah. Gates. Yeah, I would say that they were going to be heavily lawyered up, but the people who are testifying are the general counsels of Facebook, Google, and Twitter, so the lawyers are there. The lawyers are there. It's a very legal discussion. Very legal. It was a really great discussion with, with Tony, if you want to hear about all what's going on, not just about that, but other things around these social media companies and politics. And we hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with David Rosenblatt. He is the CEO of First Dibs. We've been talking about the business, which is which is a high-end marketplace. It's a high-end furniture goods marketplace, essentially. Luxury, right? design. Luxury design. So that includes furniture, but also jewelry. And it's and all art. it's antiques and new stuff, and right? New. Yep. It's it's because yep. you think antiques. New so. new new product, which we call contemporary, is right. new to First Dibs. So designers but it's our, come to you. It's too. one of our fastest growing categories. Right. So designers yeah. would come to you. There's all kinds designers. of because right. I've noticed a lot of retailers now have we're featuring this interior designer. It's only on our website or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. so all kinds of interior designers right. who are doing their own furniture, their own kind of thing. Yeah, awesome. and also just furniture brands, right? High-end furniture brands. Mm-hmm. Who are trying to sell stuff. Where yeah. is the biggest growth area for you? Uh, so the largest of our businesses overall is furniture. Um, mm-hmm. As a category, jewelry is growing very fast. Contemporary design, contemporary furniture is growing fast. And international Europe mostly right. is growing M- very fast. Most of your business is from where? Here in the United States? Most of the demand is from the U.S. Demand is yeah. from the U.S. By the end of the year, we'll have more furniture supply from Europe than from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still anticipate that That's U.S. will be. the furniture Yeah, exactly. Right, right. yeah. Right. And then Discovery, you're not like a British auction show. What's that British show? You know what I mean? My, Antique old, my old old thing yeah yeah Antique so Roche. we don't first of all we don't we don't do auctions so we right. have a we support negotiation and mm-hmm. fixed price sales but right. not auctions support i mean people can meaning say. like you can negotiate to buy or you right. can buy to fix who decides price. on the prices then the sellers the sellers do yeah. and then but people can say but no, it's up to the buyer and seller to negotiate, to, to negotiate. and yeah. they they get in touch with each other during that through right? our platform through your platform yeah, and then yeah. you get the piece of it you and get, we get a commission you get yeah, a commission of it exactly. is there other businesses out of this you said shipping all kinds of things what else could you do obviously or is it just the commission business that's what you do well that's the primary focus of the company I mean I think you know how do we grow right. we can grow by adding verticals, by adding geographies, and by adding different types of customers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and all three of those are a focus of ours. And obviously, you depend on a, a robust economy wherever you are, wherever you're selling to, if you're selling to Saudi Arabia or wherever you – people that want to buy things, that want to buy things. Yeah, you, I mean, it's a, a, look, it's a global thing? business. So right. we feel to some degree like, you know, as long as there are economies that are growing somewhere right. um, and there's an appetite for uh, great design, you know, we'll have a great You'll business. You'll be fine. Yeah. So what, I want to talk a little bit sort of beyond – in the e-commerce space, you have a very particular niche, you know, in this area. Are you worried about Amazon moving into your space? There's, you yeah, know, we, we, we think we're in a pretty different segment. I mean, as we describe it, the mm-hmm. race for the $50 order is mm-hmm. over. It's been won. It's been won by Amazon. Mm-hmm. The race, however, for the $5,000 order has not been won. And that's the race I just that— bought, I just bought a lot of big things on them recently. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, but if you look at—I mean, again, they don't publish yeah. it. But you look at their average order yes, value, their AOV, yeah. it's not going to be, you right. know, it's not going to be 5000 bucks. Right? right, no, not um, at all. Whereas ours, we're absolutely— headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the way we think about it. Now, what makes the luxury business in general different and I think harder to access for Amazon mm-hmm. than most other industries 
you know, and it really has to do with the comfort level of the seller with mm-hmm. the environment in which they sell. Sure. And so even though Amazon obviously has all the assets in the world in terms of customer base and logistical support and payment, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's methods Walmart, and so not on. Barney's. I get it. Yeah. It's and the, and the best sellers aren't, aren't going to want to sell there. And look, I'll give you I'll give you one example mm-hmm. without naming names, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because I'm not allowed to. Mm-hmm. But we just uh, added two contemporary furniture brands to mm-hmm. First Dibs. Mm-hmm. Those brands had been selling on Wayfair, okay. which, by the way, in all other respects is a fantastic company. Mm-hmm. Um, but they withdrew from Wayfair even before they started selling on First Dibs simply because they didn't want the adjacency of their brand with the lower price products on Wayfair. So bamboo, they didn't want to be next to bamboo. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's a lot one of the things that we, look, there's a reason yeah. why you, you don't buy, you can't buy Chanel in Target, right? Mm-hmm. Chanel doesn't want to be there mm-hmm. and they're never going to be there. And do you, so you're relying on that idea that the, the Amazon is sort of the big box seller, the Walmart of this Look, we, we don't think about Amazon. What we think right. about is the customer and both on the supply side and the demand mm-hmm. side and how we grow sales, right? So Full where stop. is e-commerce going then? Okay, you have Amazon on one side, which has sucked up everything. Pretty. I mean, how do you look at them as, a, as a, you know, you're in e-commerce. What do you? Yeah, look, I, I, I love the company. Personally, I'm a shareholder. Um, you know, we track a lot of the stuff they do. We try to learn from as much of it as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so we admire them. We just see them in as a sort of orthogonal player mm-hmm. uh, to what we do. The reason I'm asking, would you see yourself buying a Sotheby's? Who knows what the future holds? Oh, are you buying Sotheby's? Well, we're to, not today. <laughs> not today, but do you think about that? You know, they bought Whole Foods. There's we just had Scott Galloway on talking about buying Nordstrom. You know, yeah. there's definitely going to be something occurring. Well, listen, I, I would put it this way: I, I believe that we're the disruptive entity in our business. Mm-hmm. There will be, you know, there will be casualties on the other side of that. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows where that goes and which companies right. those are specifically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, certainly that's happened in every other industry. And incumbents who have not taken the digital threat or evolution seriously right. have done so at their own peril. Right, right. So far, we've seen that the incumbents in this industry, you know, have not reacted differently to the Internet than incumbents in other industries. Nope. But that could change. We'll no. see. There are a lot no, of smart people. No, what is Sotheby's doing? They're all, all trying. They're, they're all trying their various dot com. Yeah, and they, you know, look, they, all, they hire a couple of people who worked at Internet companies, and then mm-hmm. they under-invest in that business Yeah, uh, and um, hope that somehow a combination of their brand name and their legacy assets right. with these people are going to somehow produce a company that can compete you know, effectively with native digital companies. But again, yeah. I think, you know, you look at industry after industry, including the one that I graduated from, the ad business, that turned out not to be the right strategy. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch them do it over and over again. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's You're like, nature. hey, hey, didn't you see this happening? But is that a negative for you to think about owning something? Do you feel like a lot of internet companies do need to move into that analog space? Well, that's, I mean, being analog, I, mm-hmm. I think, is a, an important part of our strategy. Right. Yeah. You know, and in fact, I think what that, but you know, whether well, Everlane's opening a store in yeah, but whether we you know, do that organically or or through M&A what's the is attractiveness an through an actual retail space and actual physical retail space? Amazon's looking at it. Everlane's they're all like Warby Parker. Obviously, has done incredibly yeah. well doing that. Yeah, because look, the lesson of the internet is you know power shifts from those who control distribution, meaning supply, in every industry mm-hmm. to those who control the buyer. Mm-hmm. Not in a negative sense, but those mm-hmm. who meet the buyer on on his or her own terms. Right, right. And to the extent that the buyer wants to sort of thinks about the world in, in, in a seamless way between digital and analog, one has to be in both channels. Right. 
And so we will be too. Right. Interesting. So we, what is the future? Do you go public or do you, what do you, are you profitable? Is the company profitable? Yeah, we are not by design. Okay. We're well capitalized because we've been fortunate to have, you know, yeah. uh, generous investors. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, again, I, it's not something that I, that I think about. I mean, the mm-hmm. company is healthy and growing and, um, How many know, people in all do respects, you right now? Uh, we're a little under 400 people 400 today. people. I mean, mostly yeah. in New York. Mostly in New York. And what do they do? <laughs> what do they do? It's um, a lot of people. So about a third of the company is in product and engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a pretty substantial part that is in services. Uh, and then we've Design. got – Yeah, and then we have, you know, just like every company, we have uh, a finance team, which is important, mm-hmm. and other groups. How do you compare yourself to, say, those companies? You ever get in the – I'm thinking of something like Stitch Fix. We're going to be talking to her this week here in New York and others. You know, where people – do you imagine getting into that business, sampling stuff and sending it back and – that kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, I think we'd probably segment services like that based mm-hmm. on the type of buyer. So, right. you know, consumers tend not to be interested or able to deal with that kind of stuff. Interior designers have to. Mm-hmm. So, um, our so so yes, but not for everybody. Right. Would be the short everybody. answer. All right. I want to get into some just to the larger e-commerce system just a little bit, and then finish up talking a little about some other things you're doing. Where do you see e-commerce going? I mean, do you, you have to get into AR, VR? What What is your? What, I think in this industry, what is the future. I think. Um, AR and VR is going to be a game This is your time changer. to be big, Dave, and like yeah. give me the big picture. Because <laughs> oh, we're about to do a code commerce small, events. Dave? No, be big, Dave. We're doing about this commerce event. We have all kinds of people and different. Like there's commerce changing restaurants. We have Mario Batali, others. Where what is happening? Because it feels like something massive is about to happen in retail. Well, in, something in the, massive has, has happened, of course, right? of course, and yes. It'll continue to happen. I mean, I guess I, yeah, I but think stores persist. The patterns persist. Yeah, and, I mean, look, I, I think the the you know, it's interesting. I, one of the points that uh, a book I read recently made mm-hmm. is that the, the sort of distinction between what one considers technology and what one what consider what one considers an analog is rapidly disintegrating. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll be the case too. And e-commerce will be a beneficiary of that. So, look, we sell furniture, right? And we sell stuff that you put on the walls, and we sell stuff that you put on your body. Mm-hmm. And so, AR and VR is incredibly important to us. And mm-hmm. that, in many respects, you know, nothing will ever fully eliminate the need to, to touch and feel something for mm-hmm. those for whom it's important. Um, but it certainly can go a long way towards addressing that. And I think at some point, you know, when it's widely enough disseminated, the distinction, again, between a kind of analog shopping experience and a digital shopping experience won't even really make sense. Right. right? Do you or have a understandable. VR product? In we, do, we do have a VR product, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's very much of a kind of 1.0 experiment. It's mm-hmm. in our and how app. it looks, how it looks in yeah, your Yeah, sort home. of see how this thing looks in your living room mm-hmm. is what it does. Um, what do you imagine it going to? I was just thinking about that as we're preparing for this conference. Where do you imagine it? It just replicates your room and populates it? Or what do you see it happening? Yeah, that you can create a three-dimensional model of your room and you can put take stuff in and take stuff out and move things around and mm-hmm. change its colors and dimensions and um, design a product actually to meet exactly your specifications. And mm-hmm. again, that's really something that's not possible in an analog-only world, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, but is easily doable over time with the right technology on the internet. And so, again, I think it's so early days in this business. I think Mm -hmm. when we look forward, you know, I mean, again, we started this conversation talking about advertising, Mm -hmm. right? By 2007, the internet advertising industry was almost 15 years old. It was a multi-billion dollar business. And yet the primary vehicle, at least in the display business, right, wasn't yet, didn't yet 
yet exist. And so right. I think I think the same, you know, we're even earlier in that curve in design and in, mm-hmm. in the sale of physical products. And I think mm-hmm. we'll look back at a year like 2017 and say, gee, people looked at, you know, picture, two pictures of a couch and they spent $20,000 on it. It's going to mm-hmm. seem absurd. Yeah, they probably want to feel haptics. Haptics, Dave. There you That's go. Right. Haptics, haptics yeah. how you're going to feel it. All right, I want to finish up uh, talking just briefly about you're on the board of IEC. Dara just went over to Uber. You're on the board of Twitter. We had our nice Ted Cruz moment today on Twitter. There's always a good thing on Twitter every day. Why are you doing these boards? I mean, I know you can't, apparently you can't comment on it, although you should, but I want you to talk broadly about why you're on a, boards like this. This is and what they're... So I'm, I'm on one other, which is mm-hmm. Farfetch, okay. uh, which I joined a couple of months what ago. What is that? So Farfetch is a fantastic business. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll sound familiar based on my description of First okay. Dibs. It's a global marketplace for luxury fashion. Okay. It's very large. It's growing very fast. JD.com just made a significant investment into it. Okay. Um, so I, I look, I, I, I sit on these boards to learn, mm-hmm. right? Because if my experience is limited to one company, mm-hmm. then my perspective is also limited relative to what I can learn from, from being involved with these other companies. And, you know, Farfetch in particular is the business who or the company whose business model most closely approximates first dibs what you're doing in luxury um, and yet fashion. there are sort of a couple of years down the road mm-hmm. versus uh, where we are today in terms of the evolution of the model and so you know i i learned quite a bit and in return i feel like i have something to contribute really based both on my experience in first dibs and also having run a, a large-scale uh you know kind of horizontal technology platform company and what do you learn from iac besides being amused endlessly by Barry Diller. Look, IAC is a marketplace company, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you look at its its strongest assets, they're all mar- marketplace oriented. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so those are natural learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. Barry himself is obviously a fantastic person to learn from. Mm-hmm. The other people on the board, um, you know, equally, I mean, Jack Welch sits in on, on yeah. any of the board meetings. That must be. You know, yeah, exactly. So riot. So it's it's all it's no all. Comment. I mean, look, we we can all learn yeah. from everyone yeah. around us. Yeah, these are people who I think in particular have, have yeah. a kind of do you know ability Dara to educate. Well? Do you know, I don't know. Him you well. don't know. Yeah. How? Yeah. What do you think? That would you have taken that job? Look on paper, I think he's a he's a perfect fit. I for checked that job. to see if they were coming for you for that job. Yeah, yeah. I, on on paper, he's a perfect fit for that. Yeah, job. yeah. How would you have ever taken a job like that? I'm not. A, I don't think I was a candidate, and that's. that's I'm very happy. <laughs> You're, at on first yeah. You're on my list. You're on my list. And then finally, Twitter. I know Twitter's always in the news, but lately it's been quiet. Are you? You know, Uber's been <laughs> sucking up all the at- oxygen. Silence is golden. I know. Actually, right? I yeah. mean, seriously, it's good for Twitter to have a little yeah. space to to operate. To operate. But yeah. can you talk about the, the the social impact of Twitter right now? Not as a board, what's going to say whether it's going to sell or not? What's it going to do? Is Jack going to have a yet another? Job? I put Jack up for the Uber job, by the way, so he'd have three jobs, thirty three percent each one. Um, as a Twitter director. Twi- Thank you for that. No problem. Um, I'm just trying to create trouble. And, and combine two things I like covering quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we talk about this social impact of Twitter because it's never been more relevant with Donald Trump is on it. Everything happens. I know silly things like the Ted Cruz porn thing happen, but every day it's something else. And Twitter is at the center of that action. The, the hurricane or the Charlottesville, everyone responded to each other on it. What do you think has happened to that? Because it's become that medium. Yeah, look, I think it's the ultimate expression of the democratization potential and opportunity of the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone is, everyone and anyone is put on the same level as a Kara Swisher mm-hmm. or as a New York Times. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, really powerful um, phenomenon. And how do you, what do you imagine it happening? Because it really is fascinating. I think it's fascinating. It's never been more relevant as a medium and then still struggles as a company. It's a really interesting 
dynamic that happens. Yeah, look, I don't, I wouldn't struggling. I'm not sure I would characterize it as a struggling company. I mean, it's a company that did two and a half billion dollars in revenues. It's, it's growing uh, in terms of usage um, and engagement. Uh, the leadership now is strong, and I, I feel I feel good about it. I mean, everything seems to be moving in the right direction. And do you, were you surprised that Donald Trump used it so heavily? Has be, it's become his mouthpiece? No, no. <laughs> he's perfect for it, isn't he? I call him the world's greatest Twitter troll. It's really amazing. He's really don't you don't have to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to comment. I had Jack on, and I said, I go, how do you feel about Twitter? You know, that's the most famous. How do you feel user. about Twitter? <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about uh, Donald Trump on Twitter? He goes, it's complicated. <laughs> like yeah, it was it very is complicated. Yeah, it's a really yeah. interesting thing. Anyway, David, this has been really great. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a really interesting interview. I think First Dibs is a really the reason I was interested in having you here is because the conceptual ideas behind that you can digitize any. Anything and it's not something you. When you told me, I was like, "What? What are you doing?" And I didn't even begin to make. Now it makes a lot of sense to me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with NYU professor Scott Galloway, self-driving car expert Chris Ermson, and Rent the Runway CEO Jennifer Hyman, just to name a few. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one and on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out our other shows on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no BS interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. Thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. Hey, Recode fans. After you've been updated on developments in tech and business this week, come join us at Worldly, Fox's foreign policy podcast. It's Jen Williams, Zach Beecham, and me, Yochi Driesen, with your weekly guide to making sense of the wider world. You can find us on your favorite podcasting app, so come subscribe, rate, review. Email us at worldlyvox.com. We look forward to hearing from you.